Um, so today, <clears throat> we are going to be in 1 Corinthians 14. I was raised um, with a, it was really important to my, especially one of my grandmas, um, that I'm in church. Like, it was every Sunday. Some of my earliest memories is actually uh, in this little church in Lakeside, I was building blocks with this other kid and he kept knocking my tower over. Like that's one of my earliest memories as a kid is being frustrated at church. Right, so we've all had our frustrated church experiences. So, but, but I just grew up with like the understanding that the, my worldview was is God created the world, a real snake came into the world and tempted Adam and Eve and that's where sin started, and I believe that, and I've always believed that, and that's just, it was almost easy for me to believe that, right? Because it's just, that's, how, that's what happened. And then God comes and he speaks to Abraham. It makes Abraham a promise. God makes good on that promise, and that's what happened, and I believe it, and that's what happened. The Bible says it happened, it happened. And then um, God gives Pharaoh a dream. In that dream, it's really scary, and Pharaoh's having difficulty dealing with it, and so he asks a bunch of people, hey, can you help me interpret what this dream could mean? Ends up getting this kid named uh, Joseph out of prison to come and interpret it. He's able to interpret it, gives all the credit to God, and he's able to become the second in command person and saves the whole, this entire empire and his family from a famine. So huge, that's awesome. That Bible says it happened, I believe it happened, I've always believed that just happened. Um, Jonah, God comes to Jonah, gives him a word. Jonah says, I'm not going to do that and tries to leave. So God bends nature to get his will to happen. I'll send a storm to come and then a big old fish is going to come and swallow you up and spit you out on shore. Just grew up. That's what happened. Like that, I just believe it. Okay, that's what happened. So I grew up knowing that God really does speak to people in really powerful ways. God is able to show up in a physical way if he so chooses and interacts with people. He wrestles with some people in the Bible. He stands face to face with some people in the Bible. God is able to practically be involved in people's lives and God is able to prophetically be involved in people's lives. Over and over again in the Old Testament, you see God giving someone a prophetic vision or word, hey, this is going to happen. And then it happens. And that just, that is what it is. And I just believe it. And that, that's what happened. Okay. So the New Testament, the New Testament God, he also speaks to his people in a physical way, in a practical way, and in a prophetic way. In Acts chapter nine, you have Saul who is ravaging the church. Saul is actively persecuting and killing Christians. He's just gotten permission from the synagogues to go to the city named Damascus to bind up men and women who follow Jesus and that he can bring them back to Jerusalem and punish them, maybe kill them, probably kill them. And Jesus shows up and Jesus has a confrontation with Saul where Saul falls on the ground and goes blind from it and is just shocked. Like God just showed up and had this huge intervention in his life. This is after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Okay, well then in that same chapter, in Damascus, where Saul was going to go persecute Christians, there's a Christian, which I think is kind of cool because they all knew that Saul was coming and he didn't leave. I just kind of think that's kind of rad. His name's Ananias. And he's in the city. God speaks to him, says, hey, there's a house down this way and there's a man named Saul in it. You may have heard of him. And I want you to go and heal that man, which has always kind of been funny to me, right? Because Jesus broke Saul 
But Jesus wants Ananias to go fix Saul with Jesus's power to fix him. He's like, why don't you just fix him? Kind of funny, right? Why would God do that? You just inconvenienced Ananias. Put him in this really uncomfortable position because God has chosen that the church, you and me, all believers, is the mechanism through which he's gonna change the world. So God inter intervenes and interacts with you and me and all Christians in a very powerful, present way because he wants to see you and me be the agents that help him change the world in his direction, how he wants it to be. Okay, so that, that's in the Bible. Believe it, that's how it is. In Acts chapter 11, you have, in verse, starting in verse 27, I'll just read it for you. It says, now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. And then it says in parentheses, this took place in the days of Claudius. So it, it tells us there was a prophet. The Holy Spirit gave him a prophetic vision of a famine to come in the future. And it happened in the days of Claudius. It came true. That prophetic vision he had was accurate. So God speaks to someone physically. He knocks down Saul, speaks to someone to get them to do something practical to encourage others, direct them, heal them. And then finally, God speaks to someone to give them revelation of events to take place in the future. And it happened. So I had grown up just, I just believed that, I believe these things happen. I currently believe those things happen exactly the way the Bible says it did. I, I believe that the, the word is authoritative and true, inspired by the Holy Spirit, the things in there happened, took place. God spoke, God directed, God informed. My issue is just like, the, in my own head, does God still do that today? Absolutely. I totally believe that. But it's one of those things where it's like the disciples, it's like, okay, I believe, but help my unbelief, right? And the reason it's that way is because so many really good people, people I love and people I trust even, and people I get really encouraged by, have just been wrong. So like you have someone I really love is Chuck Smith. I got to meet Chuck Smith in um, 2012. It was a year before he died. He came to a church I was working at. Um, he was in a wheelchair. I got to meet him. It was really cool because I didn't really notice that. I didn't know he was a big deal. You know, I grew up in the San Diego kind of area. I was like, yeah, he's just a pastor around here. Kind of like I moved up to Grant's Pass and just thought, oh yeah, John Corson's like not a big deal. And it turns out a lot of people know about him. Some people are bigger deals than we think when we're kids. Well, so I get to talk with Chuck Smith, love Chuck Smith. He hurt a lot of people inadvertently when he said, hey guys, the world is gonna end in 1981. I don't know if you guys remember that, but he, he was convinced and certain the world would end in 1981, and a lot of his church got together towards the end of the year of 1981, waiting for Jesus to come back and the rapture to begin, and it just didn't happen that way. So a lot of people got bummed out, a lot of people got really disenfranchised, and a lot of people got hurt. There's a guy named Edgar um, Wisenant, is how I think you say his last name. He wrote a book, 88 Reasons That the Rapture Will Happen in 1988. But then his following bestseller was 89 Reasons the Rapture Will Happen in 1989. So these are really awesome guys, love them, but man, those things just didn't happen. It's kind of like this. Imagine that uh, the, the high school boy who goes to church, who loves God, he comes to your daughter and he says, God told me you're supposed to be my wife. Is your response praise the Lord or get behind me, Satan. 
Like it's one, which one is it, you know? So some people were wrong, and it, what has happened is it's caused me to be skeptical when you hear certain things. When someone says some of those things, hey, God told me to tell you this. Man, I don't know. And I wrestle with it probably more than I should. But on the other side of that, you have this. Matt just told me the story today. In Ashland, he went to go to this church to go listen to this uh, preacher. And the, during the preacher's sermon, he shared, yeah, man, this last week I was heading back to my car. I was about to head home after a long day. And someone approached me in the parking lot. And they came to me and said, God gave me a word. God told me that there's some secret sin in your life. And the pastor on the pulpit to the congregation said that he told this man, hey boy, you better watch what team you're on. Well, five years later, it comes out that pastor was having an affair. Destroyed his life, destroyed the church and everyone who had trusted him. And so what was that? That was a prophetic word from the Lord. That was prophecy. So God sent someone, hey, you're not listening to the Holy Spirit convict you internally. I'm gonna send someone to come and tell you, it, you knock it off. And God was patient with that man. He did not repent. So okay, your sin will find you out and it will be exposed. And that's what happened to that person. So does God still speak to people prophetically today? Yeah, and so maybe for you, you've experienced someone say to you, hey, God told me this, or you're, just for one reason or another, you just find yourself being skeptical of those things. And if you feel that way, for this text that we're gonna read tonight, I think for you and me, there's a reality of this life that I'm missing out on because I'm not earnestly desiring to experience it in the way that Paul experiences it, in the way that the, old, the New Testament believers experience it. They would come to church with this expectation of God is going to directly intervene and, and potentially speak to me or someone else. God's going to have a word for us today. And they, they really, really see it. And so to catch you up, 1 Corinthians 14, here's the climate. Here's what's going on. There's this church in Corinth. It's got big issues, like serious issues. Um, Paul loves these people. He wants them to be a city set on a hill. He wants them to be a light in a dark place. And Corinth was a dark place. And so it's really important to him that they reflect God well and, and God's character well and God's order well. And so that when non-believers come in, they can receive the word of truth and they can come to know Jesus as King and Savior and God. And so one of the issues that comes up beginning in chapter 11 is your worship services. We need to address the worship services and what's going on in your corporate worship because there's, there's the issue we're gonna see tonight is there's a lot of people speaking in tongues and it's, it's a lot of people speaking in tongues. It's like everybody speaking in tongues. And so a new believer comes in. There's the, um, do you guys remember David Crowder band? You remember those guys? No, so he's a great guy. And he ended up going off just doing a band called Crowder. And his band, they started playing music together and going around still playing music. And I got to hang out with them um, for a little bit. And they were explaining, they went to this church one time and they, they were gonna lead worship. And they said, hey, let's go in the back and let's pray. And they said, oh, that sounds great. And so they had like 20 people back there and they circle up and they all pray. And a lot of us have been in situations like that. Hey, we're just gonna go pray. And we all take turns praying. I said, okay, um, let's just pray. And they all bowed their heads. And then all at once, just everyone and it, like the whole band just went, whoa, because they weren't like, well, I'm not ready for that. You know, I don't have the gift of tongues, so I tried my best, but you'll have to give me grace there. 
But and it was almost like, oh my gosh, this is shocking. What is this? And this is believers. So in Corinth, you have non-believers coming in to a group of people. Oh, hey, Paul. Hey, Jim. How you doing? Okay, let's have a seat. Um, hey, let's pray. And then the whole congregation erupts into noise. It's like, wow, there's a lot going on right now. There's a lot for me to take in. And maybe some people didn't want to come back. And news of this is spread and got to Paul. And Paul says, okay, we need to really address some things. Um, so Paul is saying, let's put some boundaries on this. Paul wants mature believers. He wants believers that when they come together, they're being aware of their circumstances, what's around them. Last week, we talked about love. We talked about the goal for you is to love people. The goal of church is not for you to get your preferences and get things the way you want it. The goal of church is to have people come in and get to know Jesus and for us to celebrate in our life together, be encouraged, go out into the world and make disciples. Like that's, that's what we're gonna be doing. And um, so he wants these mature believers who are able to come together, who are able to uh, worship well. I, right now, at my home have a seven-year-old, a four-year-old, a two-year-old, and a two-month-old. And they all are demonstrating different levels of maturity. The seven-year-old, praise the Lord, is finally able to get herself breakfast in the morning. Man, she can get her, she pour her own cereal. What a win, right? My two-year-old, if I don't get him food in the proper amount of time, the morning is over right? Like it is war. Dad is the enemy. There can only be one. Like it's Highlander. So like that's, that's where we're at. What you hope for as a parent is you're able to raise your child in maturity to learn how to handle situations, how to read the situation and say, you know what, right now there's a lot going on this morning. I probably shouldn't scream. You know, like you hope that they can read the situation. Paul is saying, we're going to learn to read the room together, okay? So that's the text tonight, is we're going to be looking at tongues, we're going to be looking at prophecy, and we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Pursue love. So all the things addressed last week, pursue love. This is what it looks like. This is how it's demonstrated amongst yourself. Pursue that and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. So prophesying can be and is a revelation about future events. God speaking to you personally, God revealing a word to you, God directing you, God um, engaging in, in, in you and having you then turn and engage in your community. Prophesying can be and can happen in you're at home and you're studying and you're, you're just reading God's word and God just kind of gives you this, guy, I really need to talk to my brother today. And maybe not even about this text, but this text is having me think about, I, I need to talk to him and, and just, I, I haven't had a serious conversation about the Lord with him. I need to, I need to go do that. It can be, you're at work. And you're just, you're just working and you're thinking about how good God has been to you. Like, man, I don't deserve what God has given me, all that God has entrusted to me to. He's been so generous with me. I don't deserve the grace that he's poured out upon me. And that just encourages you to go and share that with someone else and exert someone and, and, make some, and bring comfort to somebody. It can be expressed in those ways. Luke 19, um, Luke 19 has this parable where Jesus is explained that there's a nobleman and he's about to go off to a far country and he's gonna receive for himself a kingdom and then he's gonna come back. And so what he does is he entrusts 
all of his servants with 10 talents. And then he comes home and he talks to each one of those servants. And the first servant says, hey, the 10 talents that you gave me, I've made 10 more. And so he goes, man, that's awesome. You've been faithful and much, much more is gonna be given to you. You'll, you're gonna oversee 10 cities. The next one says, hey, your 10 talents has made five more. Man, good job. The last guy though, he says, hey, here's your 10 back. I put it in a handkerchief. I buried it away because I was afraid of you, so I hid it. You're severe. You take what you didn't deposit and you reap what you did not sow. And the nobleman says to him, I'm gonna condemn you with your own words. You think I'm this way, so you're gonna get me this way. I think for me, I think what that text says is how you view God is really how you get God. You had two guys who believe God is generous, God is good, I'm gonna be just the, a good steward with what God has given me, and it, hey, there was increase, and God says, hey, I'm gonna give you more. I'm gonna be more generous with you. I'm gonna be more good with you. I'm gonna give you more increase. And then you have a guy who says, God is mean, God is severe, God doesn't, God, God reaps where he doesn't sow, and okay, you're gonna get me how you think I am. And so I wonder if I miss out on some things because I, okay, this text says, desire spiritual gifts. Do I desire spiritual gifts? Do I desire things in a way that makes me even sometimes uncomfortable? Do I desire someone coming to me and bring in prophecy to me? What if the reason that I'm having a hard time desiring spiritual gifts is because I don't view God as a God who can or wants to communicate with me that way, so I miss out? I know he's able to, I know he has, I know that he's, he's He's proven he can over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. But if someone comes up to me today, am I gonna be open-minded to this might be God and test it in that way? And, you know, we're not a super charismatic, or we're not super, there's, there's like extremes, right? The extreme is the Pentecostal. We're not on that side where there's this, um, if you are actually filled with the Holy Spirit, the way that you prove it is you speak in tongues, and if you go on YouTube, you can take classes to learn how to speak in tongues, okay? The fact I know that tells you, man, I've tried, all right? Like, I wanna be filled with the Spirit, would like this a lot. Like, the, there's this belief that you have to do these things in order to be a really, really good Christian. All these people in Corinth, they really desire to be a really, really good Christian. They wanna be filled with the Holy Spirit. They want to know God. They wanna have God work in them. And so Paul is saying in this text, those are good things. You are, all are really doing, speaking in tongues a whole lot. We're, we're gonna pull this down a little bit, but then there's something I really want you to do. That I want you to desire these spiritual gifts and we're gonna lift those things up. So that, let's read as we see verse two. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. So what speaking in tongues is, is it's this spiritual conversation between the person and God. The person sometimes doesn't even know what they're saying. They can't interpret it for someone else. I don't know what was spoken in that way, but it's my love language between me and God. And Paul is gonna say in here, it's a really good thing. Paul does it more than any of them. Paul speaks in tongues in his personal relationship, his quiet time with Jesus. Paul says he does it, he does it a lot more than them. It's your spirit directly talking to God. And so verse three, on the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. 
The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. So you have all these people who want to love the Lord. They're expressing spiritual gifts and giftings. And what has probably happened in their corporate worship setting is a little bit of one-upmanshipness. So they're speaking in tongues and they can do it pretty loud. But man, I'm louder. And I can speak in tongues with even more fervor. And I can do it even better. And so there, there might be a little bit of that where Paul says, you know, hey, the one who speaks in tongues builds up himself. It's not for the building up of the church. It's for the building up of yourself and your own personal relationship with God. Is that what we're doing on Sundays? Paul says, no. You're all really good at it. Man, you're doing that real great. But we're, we're, gonna, we're gonna do that maybe a little less. We're gonna bring that down a little bit. But prophesying, I really want you to do that more. I want, I want that to be something you desire and you work forward to and that comes up more often. So when I was in high school, I had a friend named Edgar and I got to go to his church a few times. Edgar's dad was not born in America and his um, first language wasn't English. And he was pretty good at speaking English, but not great. And so whenever we would go to church, they were a Sunday and a midweek church family, on the midweek, they would go to his church where he could understand what was being said. And I got to go one time. And at his church, the Spanish pastor would come up and he would share. And he would be speaking and he would tell a joke that just slayed. Everyone's laughing. And I remember it was me sitting there being like, okay. And then the, he would take a break and the other pastor would get up and he would say what he said but in English. And so then it, I would get to hear the joke and then the punchline would come and oh, that was pretty funny. And then the Spanish guy would come up and he would keep teaching and he'd say something, there'd be a giggle and then the other guy would come up and I'd be like, okay, what, what is it? And then I'd get to hear him like, oh, hit and miss, you know, it's fine. You know, and like, that's, that's how the service was, you know? Speaking in tongues, you have people who maybe are non-believers who come into church and someone's speaking in a language I don't understand but the punchline never comes. I don't get it. And now the unbeliever is left out and they don't get to experience whatever the believer was experiencing. They miss out on it. And that's a bummer. And Paul is saying, that's not what we're going to be doing. And so verse six, Paul says this. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? Hey, if I get to come and talk to you again, do you want me to hold a hour-long sermon where I speak in languages you don't understand? Or do you want me to bring you knowledge, prophecy, or teaching? Well, okay, okay, I'm probably gonna choose prophecy or teaching. That's pr probably what I'm gonna choose. Paul is saying, obviously, that's what you're gonna want. Verse seven, if even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if your tongue, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, 
and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for the manifestation of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. When we do corporate service, it's not for my preferences and what I desire, but it's for the building up of the church. And so he gives a few illustrations. One of them is this. It's instruments. If you have, in verse 7, the flute or the harp, if they don't give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? When I was going to RCC, I started to take music classes. And in music classes, you, get to, you have to study like Beethoven and Bach and all these classical composers that everybody knows. But then they bring you all the way to the modern composers because they want to give you a broad range. And today, there's this modern composer. His name is John Cage. And if you know him, don't spoil it for your neighbor. His name is John Cage. And what John Cage does, in my opinion, to the music world, is what the Church of Corinth was doing to non-believers who come into church, right? So here, here's what happened. Is there's this song, it's called 433. And I've got it for you. And it's gonna be up here. And it, I'll explain it to you as it's reading. But the most infuriating part as a person who studied music is it says can be played on any instrument. That's a big thing to say, right? This song can be played on any instrument, any, any group of instruments? <laughs> That's a bit, okay. And uh, you know, my dad raised me on Foo Fighters and CCR and Simon and Garfunkel. Like this is the kind of music I'm used to, right? Is it not going to work? It's okay if it doesn't. I can explain it. There it is. Okay, here we go. So watch. The composer. He gets up there. They get at the ready. 433 for any instrument or combination of instruments. It didn't freeze, you could tell by them up there. <laughs> so for four minutes and 33 seconds, the music is the sound in the room. If someone falls down on the way to the chair, that's the song. If there's a car crash outside, that's the music. As a music major, this drove me nuts. <laughs> There's not many songs where I'm like, mm, okay, did you know you can listen to this on Spotify? <laughs> Dude, did that drive you crazy? It's silence. He makes money off of nothing. That's, my goodness. This is for someone who comes into this orchestra. Man, I'm going to get to hear this brilliant composer, John Cage. I, I didn't even, he's everywhere. I didn't realize he was there. Okay, yeah, let's go listen. And he's come, he sits down and we're going to listen. And they do this for four and a half minutes. This is real. Anyway, you can take it down. Paul says, you know, if, if an instrument does not give distinct notes, how is anyone going to know what's played? How is anyone going to know the song? How is anyone going to be able to respond to it? How is anybody going to be able to be moved by what is shared unless they hear what they're being told to do, if they're, unless they're being encouraged, hey, here's how you need to live, unless they're being comforted, hey, it's all going to be okay, it's well with your soul, our God's in control. 
The second illustration he gives is if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will be ready for battle? In the American Revolutionary War, there were these group of people called the Minutemen. And their deal was when they heard the alarm, when they heard the trumpet, when they got told the enemy is coming, they could be ready in a minute's notice. That was their whole deal. In one minute, we will get out of bed, be dressed, be armed, be ready for battle. That's all it's gonna take us. And what Paul is saying is, if you can't tell what the trumpet means, if you can't tell if the trumpet means we're under attack, if you can't tell if the trumpet means, hey, we've had victory, if you can't tell what the sound of the trumpet means, you can't respond correctly. You can't run for cover. You can't celebrate because you've won. No one knows what you're talking about. And then verse 13. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, but my spirit my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I'll pray with my spirit, but I'm also going to pray with my mind. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he doesn't know what you're saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Paul is writing this letter to this church, taking a long time to address this subject because this church is out of control with the way that they speak in tongues. And Paul says, I do it way more than you. Isn't that crazy? Verse 18, I thank God I speak in tongues more than all of you. But verse 19, nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. You speak maybe in a day 10,000 words, the entire day. If you talked all day long in tongues, or if you just said, hey, how you doing, Jim? Hey, how you doing, Jim? Five. Paul says those five are, were more beneficial because the other person was able to be engaged, lifted up, comforted, encouraged. Those five would be better. Paul is saying we need to love people in how we do corporate worship. We need to be mindful of the non-believer. Paul says he speaks in tongues more than anybody this is just something he does in his walk with the Lord and he encourages them to do so as well, but be mindful. Can the other people that you're with say amen? Can they agree with you? Can they be encouraged? Can they be comforted? Can they be built up? Because that's what our goal needs to be. Verse 20, brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law, it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. So just maybe something to log away for later when someone says, I don't really know if you've got the Holy Spirit if you don't speak in tongues. You might just highlight that verse. Just have it in your pocket. Verse 22, thus, tongues are a sign not for believers, 
But for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? That may have been the report that came back to Paul. We don't know. Verse 24, but if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Paul is saying the goal of every worship service is to experience, is to know, is to realize the presence of God. And what had been happening in Corinth is they had been encouraging their congregants the believer to self-indulgently express their spirituality without care of who is around them. It's all, it's all about me and my walk with God and, and me experiencing my own building up. And Paul says, no, the, the goal is to realize the presence of God for every person who comes in. The, in doing so, the secrets of your heart, they're gonna be laid bare. You're gonna see how God's reality meets all the needs of your heart and you're able to drink deeply of it because you're able to all come together and understand. And when a word of prophecy is shared, the non-believer is able to say, God was really in here. How many times, and I, it doesn't only happen in a sermon, but sometimes it happens in a sermon. How many times have you ever had an experience where you're sitting in church and you're just like, that dude was talking right to me? Can't tell me how many times I hear a, a husband and wife when they're on the way out of church being like, did you tell Matt? <laughs> right, we had a guy a few weeks ago who he, he really dis, um, just felt like, man, I'm not welcome in church. I don't really feel like I want to go, but okay, I'm going to go. And he comes late to the nine and he came right up to the doors and he said the pastor was just, he wasn't looking at other people, man. He was looking right at the window, right at me. I'm like, I know, I know for a fact that wasn't true. And then he goes and he sits back in his car and he came in for the 11 and just had a, man, he, he just realized the presence of God because he was in a sermon and, and he left having to say, God is really in that place. Paul is saying, that's the goal. The goal is that people would say, God is really in this place, whether it's through uh, just teaching, just study, just exhortation or through prophetic through prophecy, through a group of a congregation of people who embrace God can speak to me, God can share a word through me for this person, and I'm gonna seek that. It's so verse 26. What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, so he's gonna put constraints, let there only be two or at most three and each in turn and let someone interpret. But if there's no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. When you come together in church, if there's not an interpreter and you really desire to speak in tongues, what does Paul say to do? Knock it off. Nope, we're not doing that today. You go sit and you talk to God. Don't talk to us. You talk to God. You quiet, talk to God. That's what Paul says right here. And so there's some on one side who would say, we don't want to limit the Holy Spirit. We don't want to limit the Holy Spirit and say only so many people can speak in tongues and, and it can only happen in this way. Who wrote this? The Holy Spirit. 
I mean, if you believe that the Bible is authoritative, it's the Holy Spirit who wrote this. Who put the constraints on the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit did. So I think he's okay with there only being three. You're not limiting God. God said, that's how I want it done. And so he's saying, privately, have at it. Go home, on the drive home, speak in tongues, speak in tongues to your kids, whatever. But congregationally, if there's not an interpreter, knock it off. Calm down. We're not gonna do that today. And verse 29 says, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. That when there's a moment of prophecy, when there's a person who says, man, God's really telling me this, it needs to be shared with someone who can evaluate it and say, that's really a word from the Lord. You need to share that corporately with the church. And if that's happening, a movement within the body, two or three, don't have to be a whole, this isn't, we're not gonna spend all weekend in church. It's two or three. And the non-believer will be able to hear and all the people in the body will be able to be lifted up, exhorted, groan. Verse 30, if a revelation is made to another sitting there, let them first be silent. Verse 31, for you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and be encouraged. Verse 32, and the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. God is a God of orderly praise. And what has been happening in this church is it's been a chaotic situation. So when they're having moments in church where someone's coming and saying, hey, God told me to give you, God told me that God wants you to give me your social security number and your mother's maiden name. And Paul is saying, you need to be able to talk to a elder and say, hey, I'm, I think God is telling this man that I need to give him access to my bank accounts. And he's able to go, that doesn't line up with God's word. And you go, man, I didn't think so either. Thank you. And then you could say, that's not a word from the Lord. You know, or, hey, God is really telling me that this person is, is struggling and there's some major issues going on and, and it needs to be addressed. And then the elder is able to talk either to another person who has that same prophetic word or with that person. And all of a sudden, Stuff is able to come out. People are able to be convicted and say, God is really in this place. All their secrets are laid bare and they're able to come to repentance and change direction. Paul is saying, that's what we're supposed to be doing. That's what we're supposed to be looking for. And so um, I think next is verse 36, right? That's where we're, 36 is where we're at. Is that what you're seeing, 36? That's where we're, why are you laughing? Okay, the end of verse 33 says, as in all the churches of the saints. And then it goes to verse 34. But listen, so far, what have we been talking about? Orderly worship. This is what church looks like. Church is chaotic. Church is crazy. We're talking about orderly worship. This is the framework in which I want things to be done. Two or three, if there's no interpreter, no thank you for prophesying. Two or three, let everyone evaluate it. Make sure it's really a word from the Lord. Don't just take it at face value. This is what we're doing in church. It's ordered worship. That is the framework in which we are speaking. We're still, context drives meaning. We're still in this context. We're still in the same breath of conversation. Verse 33 just molds into verse 34. So just notice that as we read. Verse 34 says, The women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law also says. And I don't want to hear anything about it. 
Verse 35 says, if there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. So some people take this and they say that women cannot speak in church because that's what it says, right? However, it makes it really difficult for women to be obedient to what Paul has already laid out in 1 Corinthians 11, where he talks about women praying and prophesying. Those are kind of mutually exclusive. It's kind of like inviting Justin into a conversation and not expecting Justin to dominate the conversation. They're mutually exclusive, right? I'm very loud and I think I'm really funny. That, and so it comes out and I talk a lot. And so those things can't go together. So here's probably what is happening because we're talking about church. We're talking about the Sunday service. We're talking about coming together and praising the Lord and what that looks like. And Paul is addressing specific issues that are happening in this church. You guys are talking in tongues a whole lot. Let's, let's tone that down and put constraints on it. And let's lift up prophesying. It, desire spiritual gifts earnestly. Love that. Do that. Pull this one down. Desire this spiritual gift. Lift this one up a little bit. There needs to be some tension among those. Here's probably what was happening. In the Jewish synagogues and Honestly, in a lot of churches around the world today, you would not get to sit the way you're sitting right now with your spouse, if you're here with your spouse. It's women on this side and men on this side. And that's just what they do. That's just like, it's traditional. It wasn't weird. That's just how church was. And what was happening, I believe, is women would come and sit and men would come and sit and the church would start first in tongues and then the pastor would speak in Greek. And in Corinth, you're in a place kind of like New York, where it's people from all different languages, all different backgrounds, all different histories have come and they're living in the same area, doing trade and doing life. And it's a major city. And so you have women who speak all different dialects from all different backgrounds without a formal education system for most. And so you would have women who would say, what did he say to his husband? Or... You would be like me and my young friend sitting in church when I don't understand the pastor. I'm gonna to talk to my buddy because I know he's gonna talk for another 15, 20 minutes before the guy I can understand can come up. And I'm not good at sitting still when I'm in high school. I'm not gonna sit still today, but I'm not gonna sit still when I don't even know what's going on. So I'm gonna to talk to my buddy. There's probably a lot of crosstalk, a lot of chitter chatter, a lot of, I don't understand that. Can you explain that? And so Paul says, hey, we're not gonna do that. If you have a question, you need to go talk to your husband. If, you, if, if there's a word you don't understand, write that down and then ask your husband at home, hey, when the pastor said palingenesia, I had never heard that before because it only comes up two times in the New Testament. Can you explain to me what palingenesia means? Because that's not one of the words we normally use a bunch. And he'd be able to say, oh yeah, I don't know what that means either. Let's go ask the pastor. Or yeah, I do know what that means. Here's what it means in the middle of the sermon isn't the time to ask. I personally think that's what this is addressing because it's in the context of ordered worship. Am I gonna use 1 Corinthians 14, 34 as a fun text message to send to my mom sometimes? Sure, sure, you know, I'm only human. But I do not believe that it's saying women can't talk. I just don't think that, it don't work. I'm laughing right now, it doesn't work. And just in the context, I don't believe that's what it's saying. 
And so then verse 36. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones that is reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge the things that I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. The restraints on tongues isn't Paul's opinion. Isn't Paul's best guess. It's a command of the Lord. This is the final say. This is what it is. There's no reevaluating. This is what we're doing. And verse 38, if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. He's not saying no tongues. He's saying really want to prophesy, really pray for that, but don't deny the speaking in tongues. So it's before we were this, now we're trying to do this, or maybe this, maybe this. But all things should be done decently and in order. So practically, some things that for me, as I was studying, that I want to work on and take from this text, and maybe it will speak to you, is I don't believe that I go into enough situations in my life with the correct attitude. I don't believe that I go into enough situations where I go, today, I'm gonna have an encounter with God. Today, someone has the potential to give me a word from God, or today, God could potentially give me a word for someone else that may be prophetic. It, God may reveal to me information that I did not previously know that I need to share with someone else. God may do something that I am not ready to expect. And I, I believe you get God how you, how you view God. However you view God is how you get God. And so do I view God as being a God who can do that? Yes. But it's one of those things of, okay, I believe, but help my unbelief. So personally for me, not in a chaotic, out of control way, but in an ordered, intentional, beautiful way, I want to come into more situations in my life expecting I'm gonna have an encounter with God today. So that's the first thing. Second is tongues. If you believe that you are supposed to speak in tongues, pray for tongues. It doesn't mean that you'll get it, but pray for tongues. And then pray that there would be someone who can interpret it. Paul says there's a place for it. And I, what a bummer if we miss out because we start to think there's not a place for it. Paul says, no, there's a place for it. Don't, don't say no speaking in tongues. Do not forbid speaking in tongues, but it needs to be ordered. There must be an interpreter and it ultimately be used for the building up and edifying of the church. And lastly is prophesying. Pray that God gives you the ability to exhort, to comfort and edify other believers and pray for the opportunity to share that with them. What that looks like, I think, is different for every single one of us. But I believe that God can still equip and empower and give you and me those giftings today. And how you view God is how you get God. So let's pray, let's earnestly strive for those spiritual gifts, as Paul says. God, would you equip us? So Jesus, we wanna be people who see you move. We wanna be people who can help be a part of a group of believers that cause everyone who comes together to say, wow, God surely is in this place. 
Lord, help us to not be people who are overly skeptical and miss out on what you're doing, but help us to be people who rightly divide the word of truth, people who are able to evaluate prophecy by the scriptures and through your Holy Spirit to know what is a word from the Lord and what isn't. And Jesus, don't let us be people who miss out on what you want to do in Grant's Pass. So if it's speaking in tongues, if it is interpretation, if it's prophecy, I pray that you would equip. I pray that you would give giftings. And I pray that we would be able to see the God who can work miracles move. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.